This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. It's three years since the book Hit and Run first put Operation Burnham in the headlines and threw light on a situation which unfolded far from the public gaze. The authors came under heavy scrutiny during a long official inquiry, as well as the Defence Force. But now that the official inquiry report is out, what did the media make of it? Also this week... The new miracle drug that's curing terminally ill Kiwis, so why isn't it funded? One media outfit is backing the public funding of a super expensive new drug, but are its viewers getting all the background? But before that, there's been an intense focus on politicians' conduct lately, amid all the scandals and sudden resignations which have sparked so many headlines and stacks of media comment. But this week, some of the MPs who are quitting politics took a swipe at the media on the way out. Quarantine Island, the new home of outgoing Green MP Gareth Hughes. Kind of sounds like the punchline to a joke or, yeah, somewhat ironic, but yeah, moving to Quarantine Island in the middle of a global pandemic probably is a smart decision. Outgoing Green MP Gareth Hughes there in a TVNZ news piece last weekend all about his impending move to an island in Otago Harbour on which the only inhabitants will be his family. That seems like a pretty effective way of leaving parliamentary politics behind and judging by some of the tensions between politicians and the media lately, a few other MPs might fancy that sort of isolation. But there was one more duty in the House for Gareth Hughes before exile on Quarantine Island. There is some work left to do, though, before Gareth moves here full-time, like writing his valedictory speech. The Greens' former broadcasting spokesperson's valedictory on Tuesday turned out to be fairly grievance-free, but not so the one by the former Minister of Broadcasting that followed. Claire Curran was not going quietly before her political retirement in Dunedin when it came to the media. Politicians in the news media focus on conflict, perceived or real slip-ups, rather than substance in the quality of ideas. It's time to have a serious discussion about how we practice politics in this country and how politics is reported. And we'll have a serious discussion about that in a minute with the former minister. And Claire Curran wasn't the only outgoing MP to have a crack at them in her farewell speech. Outgoing National MP Sarah Dowie's unleashed on media for their treatment of the Jamie Lee Ross saga. Last year, Dowie was revealed to be the MP that had been in a relationship with Ross, Dowie told the House there are times when the media fraternity needs to audit itself on its ethics and peddling of sexism and patriarchy. Invercargill MP Sarah Dowie said the media calling for a clean-up of politicians right now was hypocrisy and she got lots of applause and hugs in the House after telling the media to go and audit themselves. But News Talk ZB political editor Barry Soper wasn't taking that to heart. Yeah, but hang on a minute. It wasn't the media who went public with the affair. It was Jamie Lee Ross, and it wasn't the media who sent a text to Ross uh, wishing him dead, and it wasn't the media who dragged the story out, and it wasn't the media who lifted the bedsheets on the affair. It was none other than Paula Bennett. Barry Soper said, more or less, she started it with that now-notorious text message to MP gone rogue Jamie Lee Ross, which became an explosive news story last year. But Sarah Dowie had already made her feelings clear about the media coverage of all that in the Sunday Star Times the weekend before. She told Stuff political reporter Andrea Vance the treatment of her amounted to slut-shaming, and in a lengthy video interview with Melanie Reid of Newsroom, Sarah Dowie said that Jamie Lee Ross who she called a predator, had been allowed to set the media narrative. And Melanie Reid picked out coverage from that time from News Hub, like this. Jamie Lee Ross says that text led to his nervous breakdown. Driving around his electorate, Jamie Lee Ross revisits the worst moment of his life. 
it was my children that stopped me from actually going through with hurting myself. Police have now confirmed they're investigating an abusive text message sent to Ross by an MP he had an affair with, telling him he deserved to die. After Sarah Dowie's valedictory speech in the House last week, Claire Curran said this to News Talk ZB's political editor Barry Soper. There is a toxic culture in our parliament, but I think you guys need to turn the mirror on yourselves as well and take responsibility for how you report things and how you comment on us. Just go and ask anybody in the street. They will be disgusted at some of the political reporting that is happening in our country. And that cut little ice with Barry Soper. Yeah, well, I'd suggest uh, the reporting simply reflects what's going on in the place. We can't be held responsible for what they get up to uh, and what they put out there. I think it's called taking responsibility yeah, look, as I, far as the politicians I go. I tend to agree with you, Barry. I mean, I have sympathy for the... I've said this before. I have sympathy for Claire Curran um, and, and, and also for Sarah Dowie for the fact that they... You know, having that kind of pressure and that intensity of the attention is not fun. Um, but unfortunately it does come with the territory somewhat. That, they hold public office. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. while I think both of these women are sort of, you know, um, doing the whole crybaby victim thing in public, um, it's, neither of them have been stellar performers, right? So, you know... No. However, the NBR political editor, Brent Edwards, did think journalists should be taking note of what Sarah Dowie and other politicians had to say this past week about the way they work. The one thing the media don't get in this place or don't recognise is what part they play in politics and, and the coverage of politics and that means and when we go back for instance to the way that media organisations took the material from Hamish Walker for instance for political purposes didn't disclose where they got the information from yet ran stories about this great leak and how it was terrible who was the leaker when they knew I mean you know it does raise questions sometimes about the media coverage in this place but I think from Sarah Dowie's perspective, she sees the media sort of sitting on the high horse and judging the politicians when, in fact, they may be engaging in similar um, activity. But politicians aren't only unhappy with stories about MPs' personal lives. It's a style of political reporting that they say has increased the intensity of the focus on those who hold public office. After Sarah Dowie's speech, Claire Curran took it up a notch when she told reporters at Parliament there was too much commentary and slurs that go alongside it in political coverage, and she said that she was afraid that someone would die before the media changed their ways. Last Monday on RNZ National, when News Hub political editor Tova O'Brien was asked whether Sarah Dowie was right to say that political reporters were partly to blame for a toxic culture in Parliament, she responded with the defence of her own handling of the Sarah Dowie-Jamie Lee Ross story. And then when asked about Claire Curran's claims that political reporting had become destructive and even endangered the mental health of people in politics, her response was interesting. Her view is important and it's important for us to always keep a check on ourselves and to be uh, mindful of the human side of a story and to take into account well-being and mental health. It's important to consult with your colleagues when you're reporting on things. I've got an incredible team in my office, really smart, empathetic, thoughtful journalists, and we talk a lot and we workshop every story. And certainly in those more challenging stories like uh, the Sarah Dowie story, the Jamie Lee Ross story, I do that in concert with my bosses and our legal counsel, people whose opinions I trust. And we are always, always weighing up the human side because that is, that is important for me as a journalist. It's also critically important for me as a person. But have you ever had a story and thought, well, we won't run this one because it might impact the mental health of the person who it's about? Yes, lot, yes, quite a few times, and we haven't. 
The following day, which was Tuesday, it was Claire Curran's turn to get things off her chest one last time in Parliament in her valedictory speech. Politicians should be held accountable, but we are not prey. The accountability lacks perspective. If you don't believe me, go ask the public. Now by you, Claire Curran meant political reporters, and she then moved on to address them directly like this. You are not unaccountable, though you act as though you are. Your mandate derives from the citizens of this country. Please use it wisely and maturely. You are neither judge nor jury. Remember that your power and the notion of media freedom that you protect so fiercely rests on a promise of service to the democratic public. You are accountable to them. But media organisations are accountable to regulators and complaints bodies, and reporters are accountable to their editors and their outlet's editorial principles. Politicians feeling like they're under attack from a hostile media is nothing new, so I asked Claire Curran this week whether anything had really changed in recent times. Um, You talked about internal checks and balances. I think in many news organisations, those internal checks and balances have disappeared. And, you know, the journalist writes this story, pretty much posts it straight online. I don't know whether they actually have got to the point where they're writing their own headlines. But, you know, we we are at that point. What's an example, though, of if you say you're not unaccountable, though you act as though you are? What can you point to as an example of... So you feel like the journalists have published something they shouldn't have or broadcast something they really shouldn't have? I really have tried hard not to um, point the finger at any anyone specifically, but I'll give a couple of examples, and one of them's from your own organisation. This week, following my valedictory, RNZ's news story um, led with a headline that said, Sacked MPs, Lise Galloway and Curran, give their farewells from Parliament and yet I I resigned as a minister. That framing has persisted throughout the last two years that somehow I was sacked as a minister, and it's simply um, not true. Yes, I was removed from Cabinet. I was a minister. Um, There was a way back for me into Cabinet, but the relentless hounding of me, all this is very public now, um, led to me resigning as a minister. And the other example I'll give is again a headline which created... Uh, what the headline said, which was pandemonium, which was the New Zealand Herald's front page huge headline. That was the day after the first recorded case of COVID-19 yeah. in, in New Zealand, which yes. happened to be in, in Auckland. Yes, which which created a, a an enormous sense of panic amongst the population, um, which was outrageous in, in any context that you want to give it. You know, what I've been trying to do is draw attention to this, and I think I described it in an interview or when I was in a stand-up recently, where I said, you guys are players. You've become players rather than um, reporters. And, you're, and, and it's not that there isn't a place for commentary within media. There is, but it should be labelled commentary. But commentary is in our news reporting. It's in our news reporting every day, and, it's, and we are being told what to think about things as they are reported but, but by comment, the journalists. commentary's not new, though. I mean, no, no, commentary's not new, but it's... Um, you described it as destructive in your speech. Why is it destructive to have people who know their stuff, you know, political journalists who've been around for a while, particularly in the likes of, you know, political editors who have some licence to analyse and interpret rather than just, you know, report. Why is it destructive if they get to say 
what they think about the way certain politicians have performed or how well or badly a certain policy has been put in place. If they are writing commentary pieces to say what they is a should-be senior political journalist, editor, whatever, think about a situation, commentary has an important place. If they're writing news stories and they inject their own views into the news stories, you tell me, do you think that's appropriate? But if it's clear in the minds of the reader what's commentary and what's a news story, then there's no problem? The lines are blurred. Some of this is personal for you. You got heavily targeted, criticised. Um, you've made the point, I think, in an interview with Donna Chisholm that um, you know Shane Jones uh, had sort of off-the-books meetings in a way that you know you ended up in the news for uh, in a couple of instances and didn't get the same level of scrutiny or coverage. But in the end, if, if you mess up in government, the opposition will target you. The media will report that. That's kind of the way the cycle works? No, it's not new. It's deepening and getting worse, I think, is what I've said. It's exacerbated by the way that the news cycle has changed and the constant need to refresh the news cycle to generate the click. And every news outlet, even the one that I believe should be holding the rest of the media to a higher standard, is being driven by that rather than adhere to a purpose in RNZ's case, a a charter of responsibility. Every media organisation should be adhering to its own sense of internal accountabilities, and I think you've already said that. But is it? And is that top of mind in journalists' mind or in news editors' minds when a story is being created? There are other drivers that have become more important. Well, with that in mind... um You said um, politicians and the news media focus on conflict, perceived or real slip-ups, this is in your valedictory speech, rather than substance and the quality of ideas. But if it's slip-ups, if they're not inventing the slip-ups, it's totally legit, isn't it, for political reporters to tell the public whether they think the politicians have made a mess of things or not on their behalf? Yeah, but uh, telling the public what to think before something's even happened, is that legitimate? You did say when addressing the journalists... If you don't believe me, ask the public um, when you were talking about their accountability. Then aren't the news media accountable to the public in the end if reporters' behaviour or the style of their reporting turns them off? That would be the ultimate break on their conduct. And my immediate response is that that is such a cop-out. But are you sure the public is is turned off by this? Um, because the public still turns on and watches some of the style of coverage that you, you think needs reform. And, uh, and how many people sit in front of their televisions every night shouting at their televisions? Look, you know, there's empirical evidence that, uh, that there is declining trust uh, in our media. Rather than counting clicks, it, it's more beneficial to be looking a bit behind what the public actually is thinking and feeling. Well, some of that might be to do with, as you said, there's a type of commentary you described as actually destructive. I mean, you've had some experience of it personally. I know uh, that that's how you feel, and you talked about that particularly in that interview with Donna Chisholm. But kind of commentary, um, particularly in coverage of politics, actually, do you think, crosses the line into something that's destructive rather than just harsh but fair or contestable analysis? Well, again, I don't want to give specific examples, but... Well, people would probably quite like it if you did. I know because, they, I know because they then would. they would know exactly what, what sort of thing you're talking about. Yeah. It doesn't have to be personal, but... Um, 
Is it that fear of people will be dissuaded from taking up public office because they think the scrutiny and the comment is going to be too intense? Yeah. Uh, you know, I can tell you for a fact that um, of the conversations that I've had with um, potential new incoming MPs and the uh, apprehension that's felt by people around the level of scrutiny that they're faced with and um, especially um, for people who have a, I guess, a, a non-adversarial, a non-combative approach to their lives and, and how that's going to impact them. Um, like I say, it's, you know, entering Parliament and the realm of political reporting is like, you know, being in a sausage factory. You have to conform and behave in certain ways in order to succeed. And and certain qualities are picked out as being um, of more value than others. And your ability to be cutting, to do the cut and thrust and to be witty and the quick repartee and um, speaking on your feet and brushing things off um, is seen as more valuable than the substance of your ideas. But don't you think journalists really cut through that, particularly the senior ones, the political editors? And... No. I do want to say, though, that there is some very high-quality journalism in this country, and I, you know, I've tried to say that consistently as well. But unfortunately, that is the way that our media environment, for all the reasons that we, you've talked about over the years, um, the pressures, the external pressures, um, has evolved. You know, if there is to be a state intervention into this, it's really critical that it's value-adding. And, you know, and I'll put in a plug here for local reporting in the regions. There has been some investment in that. It is starting to show the benefits of local reporting, especially local government, more local government reporting. What I'm really asking for is reflection within our media environment for, for people to actually, who work in it, to actually think about their role in it. Well, actually, on that, so you were reluctant to name examples. Maybe I'll run one by you. Simon Bridges, when he was opposition leader, there was a leak to News Hub of his car travel spending, uh, more than any opposition leader had spent before in a similar position. This was going to be made public, I think, by the end of the week, but it was leaked to News Hub pretty clearly to damage Simon Bridges, and he found himself having to answer questions about what looked like exorbitant spending. And... When the dust settled, it turned out that actually the charge-out rate for Crown Cars for the leader of the for some weird reason, is a lot higher than it is for other ministers. And actually what looked like a, a fairly high level of spending wasn't completely out of whack with what other opposition leaders had spent. And it looked in the end as though that wasn't the public interest in revealing that wasn't especially huge. Is that an example of something where you think that the desire to comment and, and so on is perhaps... Um, you know, where the desire for a good story had got ahead of the facts? Yeah, I think it's a really good example. It's the catastrophizing and sensationalizing of something that, once it's actually looked closely at, was not a catastrophe. And yet in the end, the effect would be, well, OK, that was tough on him in that particular circumstance, but, you know, that he's a senior politician and that lets them all know that if they are cavalier with spending... The media could find out one way or another, and you know that's a break on their behaviour. I guess that's what journalists would say. In the end, that's where the public interest lies. But again, isn't that you know a kind of like an exercise of power by journalists before a wrongdoing occurs? 
as a as a like a warning shot to say, watch out because, you know, just in case you do something wrong, um, we can get you. But the core issue, you know, around Simon Bridges' expenses um, was um, was not properly examined at the time in terms of what its context was and how proportional it was in terms of some perceived wrongdoing. That's hard, but it, I guess it generated lots of stories. Before uh, your valedictory speech, Tova O'Brien, of the political editor of News Hub, she said several times uh, News Hub had decided not to broadcast items that might have had a really negative impact on people. Um, she wasn't specific about it, but she said legal counsel and editors are involved with these decisions, so it sounds like they do actually take it seriously. Yeah, I am encouraged by what Tova said. I haven't actually listened to her interview. I've heard reports about it. But I think she kind of missed the point a bit. There is a very legitimate argument and discussion to be had about the kind of reporting where um, you know politicians have fallen over for one reason or another and that there have been questions of mental health associated with it. But I think what Sarah Dowie was talking about to a large degree, was about gendered reporting, was about reporting that was portraying her from a gendered point of view. I think there's a really legitimate uh, discussion to be had around that. I mean, and, I, and yet in the parliamentary press gallery right now, there are more women right. in it and, more, and in Which senior. Is, in fact, they dominate these senior yeah, editorial well, positions for our major media news organisations. And, and the point that I've been trying to make, if the journalists will listen, <laughs> is that it's not any of them individually that are the problem. It's the system in which they operate. I know as a politician, having been in Parliament for 12 years, that I've become institutionalised in my responses in the House, you know, the shouting out during question time, the adversarial responses that we have to each other. That is not my nature. My speech went further than addressing the gallery, it went to the core of the adversarial system that we operate within. I kind of think to myself, guys, could you just have a bit of a think and a reflect? I haven't seen one piece yet written by a journalist saying, well, hang on a minute, maybe we do need to have a think about our role in all of this. And and that's really what I've been asking them to do. That was Claire Curran, former Minister of Broadcasting and MP for South Dunedin since 1999, who's standing down at the upcoming election and who finished up in Parliament this week with a farewell speech with some messages for the media. And as we heard, she wasn't the only one. You can hear more of what she had to say about that and the future of government policy on broadcasting and the media, which is currently up in the air, in the online version of the story. We will also find video versions of her valedictory speech to Parliament this week and the one from last week by Sarah Dowie MP. When the book Hit and Run was published in March 2017, political reporters came to the pack to launch do, even though the invitation explicitly said the new book was not about party politics or the election. But two previous Nicky Hager books, Dirty Politics and The Hollow Men, produced such a rich harvest of political headlines that they came anyway. But Hit and Run, written with correspondent John Stevenson, was more like Nicky Hager's book from 2011 
other people's wars. That showed that New Zealand and its troops were even more enmeshed in the war in Afghanistan than the public had yet been told. And Operations Burnham and Nova in 2010 were certainly under the public's radar up until Hit and Run hit the shelves and the news. The book said that key facts had been hidden from the public and denied by government ministers, most crucially, that civilians had been killed. And on RNZ's morning report the day after publication, the hosts ran through a long list of those not willing to talk about it. The Prime Minister Bill English, the former Prime Minister John Key, the Defence Minister Jerry Brownlee, the Acting Defence Minister Chris Finlayson, the former Defence Ministers Wayne Mapp and Jonathan Coleman, and the Defence Force all declined morning reports' request for interviews this morning. We were also unable to contact Sir Jerry Mataparai, who was the head of the Defence Force at the time and, according to the book, was in Kabul and watched the attack unfold on screens at the SAS operations room. Eventually, though, they did all have to talk to an inquiry which was launched after a change of government in 2017 and after many in the media had called for one. At the time, the NBR's Rob Hosking, who's sadly no longer with us, said this. At the end of this process, someone's credibility is going to be shredded forever. The allegations are too serious. And when the damning report into the Defence Force's handling of the allegations of civilian casualties and the potential torture of detainees was finally released last week, one reputation that was damaged was that of former Defence Minister Wayne Mapp. He had to admit on RNZ's checkpoint that he had been told about casualties, but even after many interviews about the raids and the fallout in the years since, he forgot. Looking at a quote here you made to News Hub in 2017 where you said you made it your business to be informed about the uh, type of information that was discussed regarding this operation. So I'm just trying to reconcile how this was able to happen. None of us can ever say, none of us can ever remember when we forgot, (laughs) by definition. So I can only surmise it was the death of Corporal Leon Smith, which occurred um, about two weeks after the briefing, that somehow had the effect of removing it from my immediate memory. Releasing the inquiry's report last week, Attorney General David Parker singled out Wayne Mapp like this. Following this briefing, he gave answers he ought to have known were wrong to journalists, and in the words of the inquiry, this was a significant departure from the standards expected of ministers. The Attorney-General also said that the inquiry found the hit-and-run book contained errors but also confirmed its main allegations, and in doing so, he said, the book performed a valuable public service. This was noted in an editorial in Stuff's newspapers last weekend, while last Monday the Otago Daily Times editorial said the inquiry has also shone a mostly favourable light on Nicky Hager's work and the worth of investigative journalism. The following day, Nine to Noon's media commentator Andrew Holden, a former newspaper editor, said that both authors had been vindicated and he noted that their motivation had been called into question by some pundits when the book came out. Among them was Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB. I said earlier on in this program, I really struggle to have him on the program. I, I have no time for the guy. I think he's a conspiratorialist and he's out to get the government. Even if he has something this time, and I don't know that he does, even if he has something this time, he comes with so much baggage, he's tarnished before he almost arrives. Well, this week, co-author John Stevenson also said that he felt vindicated by the inquiry's report. Noting that the Dominion Post last weekend carried the reaction to the report on its front page under the headline, Redemption, the Next Step for Defence Force, writer Elizabeth Knox replied, I think atonement comes before redemption. And with that in mind, the chastened former Defence Minister Wayne Mapp told RNZ this the previous day. 
people were injured and uh, a child in particular uh, was killed. So and although the inquiry uh, says you know, you know, it was accidental, nevertheless it happened. And because it happened, we have a duty as a nation to, to make some recompense. A year ago, Afghan representatives of those villages withdrew from the inquiry. They've just been worn down by the process, their lawyers said. And while lots has been written and broadcast this past week about the report, which drew a line under the Operation Burnham inquiry, the main victims of what went wrong there have not been the focus of much media coverage. And the full title of the book, which isn't often used, by the way, is Hit and Run, the New Zealand SAS in Afghanistan and the Meaning of Honour. Victoria has declared a state of disaster going into level four lockdown tonight to curb a second COVID-19 wave that's ravaging the state. The new miracle drug that's curing terminally ill Kiwis, so why isn't it funded? That was News Hub at six last Sunday, headlining a story about cystic fibrosis drug Trikafta, and the short answer to the question they posed there was, because it costs an absolute fortune. And who said it's a miracle drug? Well, News Hub itself did a lot. In our latest Because It Matters investigation, we reveal a medical miracle. It's a new drug and very limited use here in New Zealand. Though News Hub was backed up by a leading local specialist in cystic fibrosis, Sir Bob Elliott. The drug Trikafta is not really a miracle, though. It's a scientific and commercial achievement that cost millions to produce and cost the thick end of half a million dollars for one year's course for one person on the open market, as News Hub national correspondent Patrick Gower explained. But there is a catch. Trikafta costs $469,000 a year. It is owned by an American company called Vertex and it sets the price. It is not subsidised by government drug by a pharmac and Bella only has enough for a three-month supply. You get something like this and everything's just better. And then you realise, oh, every week you finish a box and it's like, oh, I'll need a few more weeks of this. And with just over 500 sufferers in New Zealand who could benefit, the bill to cover all of them would eat up more than a fifth of the entire annual Pharmac budget, which is clearly unfeasible. Sir Bob Elliott, who shelled out a six-figure sum for just three months' worth of Trikafta for teenage sufferer Bella Powell, told Patrick Gower this. It's cruel, actually, and unethical. While Sir Bob believes the price needs to be dropped, he is also calling on Pharmac to get involved and do a deal immediately. Get on with it. Start negotiating with Vertex for supplies of this drug at a reduced cost. And less than an hour later, Patrick Gower was back on three, campaigning for that on the project. The money is, is, is very secondary to me, but obviously it's not to a drug company who wants to not only recover the money they've spent developing the drug, but also wants to make a massive profit. The project co-host Alison Moore there was imploring Patrick Gower to fix it, but that's a tall order. There's little Patrick Gower can do about newly approved medicines being released in the US at sky-high cost, and then in Europe, and then cascading down through other territories as deals are done with national drug-buying agencies in countries with large public health systems. 
and it's in pharmaceutical companies' interests to charge as much as the big markets will bear while their new medicines are covered by patents. And though NewsHub didn't mention it, Vertex makes four market-leading treatments for cystic fibrosis and doesn't have much in the way of competition. And that's a fact frequently mentioned in online newsletters offering advice to would-be buyers of stocks and shares. The widely read Motley Fool newsletter, for example, recently described Vertex as the best biotech stock money could buy and noted that its one key hurdle is securing reimbursement deals for its drugs. Another thing that was mentioned only in passing by NewsHub is that another costly cystic fibrosis drug, Kaleidico, has also been funded by Pharmac this year. Now, in the past, Pharmac has ruled out novel drugs for otherwise terminal and rare conditions at a far lower cost than Trikafta. And on three last Monday, Patrick Gower put the ball in Pharmac's court like this. But it would cost the country $236 million a year at the current price. That's why a deal needs to be done to push that right down. But as Patrick Gower himself went on to explain on News Hub at 6, Pharmac couldn't even buy Trikafta for everyone now if they wanted to. Vertex must apply to sell the drug here, and Pharmac says it hasn't yet had an application from Vertex to fund Trikafta. Another media work show telling stories of the miracle drug Pharmac won't fund was the Māori Issues current affairs show The Hui last month, which also made the point that Vertex hasn't approached Pharmac yet. But with a price tag of around 500000 a year, their only hope of accessing it is through Pharmac. While Pharmac says they welcome applications, there appears to be no immediate plans to fund Trikafta. It's the same in other countries. They depend upon patients and pharmaceutical lobby groups to create demand and apply pressure, which is where media campaigns like the one that NewsHub and MediaWorks is now running come in. On Monday, Bella Powell was back on three where the AM show host Duncan Garner asked her for her message to the Prime Minister. And we can't live a life because you won't fork out just a little bit of money to help us because we can't pay for it. We don't have a hundred grand just, you know, sitting in our back pocket. So you're putting a price on me being able to live, but also other Kiwis being able to live. Mm. Well said, Bella. Duncan Garnerwell knows Pharmac funding doesn't respond to wish lists and he went on to tell Bella Powell and her mother this. A lot of drugs like this fall through the gaps and people like you fall through the gaps, which I think is wrong. Every life should be equal yeah. under the Pharmac rules. And it's precisely because Pharmac tries to work out how many lives can be saved and enhanced with the money available to it that few super high cost novel treatments get funded. Later that day, NewsHub put Jacinda Ardern on the spot about Trikafta like this. Do you understand why the drug companies aren't important proposals and that sort of thing? Well, of course. Does it need to be sped up? Well, that won't always necessarily be the case. And again, um, as I say, my understanding is that they haven't actually received an application for that drug. And after that, NewsHub at 6 began the story like this. Pressure is mounting on the government and Pharmac to fund a drug described as a miracle for cystic fibrosis sufferers. Following our latest Because It Matters, New Zealand's 503 patients are campaigning for Trikafta, arguing the benefits will greatly outweigh the cost to the country. But that claim, that funding the drug would save money in the long run, was not examined at all in the following report. Reporter Karen Rutherford did say that other countries had funded the drug for patients there and that Scotland was the most comparable, but she didn't say how they did it. And in Canada, public agencies are coming under sustained pressure from a public campaign there. 
a policy requiring manufacturers of new therapies to reduce their prices by between 45 and 75 percent, has been delayed after Cystic Fibrosis Canada lobbied Canada's patented drug regulator to delay it. There is one ask we have of the minister. It's a 100-day challenge to negotiate a deal for the basket of four CF medicines that are currently FDA-approved with one low price uh, within 100 days. The problem is only one medication, Kaleidico, is currently funded in Canada for people with one mutation. And that translates to less than 4% of people with CF in Canada and only like 130 people across the country. There's over 4,000 people with CF and drug coverage is only available publicly for 130. A social media campaign for the drug called Get Loud Canada was fired up in February, pressing for the funding of three Vertex drugs, including Trikafta and Kaleidico, and the pricey one, or Cambi. Here, the Cystic Fibrosis newsletter published in February says that getting Kaleidico funded was only a critical first step to accessing these other medications. We will encourage Vertex to submit an application to Pharmac for Orcambi and begin a concerted effort to secure this drug. Many countries have also negotiated pipeline or portfolio deals for access to multiple Vertex drugs over a period of years. These deals provide a suite of existing and future drugs that are likely to be developed over the lifetime of the deal. Yet much of NewsHub's campaign only mentions Trikafta. When the Trikafta for Kiwis campaign launched on social media last month, it said it would urge Vertex to make applications to Pharmac and that the upcoming election would influence its timing. And last Monday on Facebook, Cystic Fibrosis New Zealand thanked NewsHub for raising the awareness of Trikafta and said that it will be speaking with Vertex this week and the next morning this was in NewsHub's news. Supplier Vertex Pharmaceuticals has officially applied for Pharmac funding after appeals from Bella Powell. The 17-year-old has received donations from around the country, which she says has already made a difference. Graham Jarvis from the pharmaceutical lobby group Medicines NZ told the AM show this. We need to change the system. We need to actually re-energise it because all of these innovations, and there's going to be a heck of a lot more coming out, the bus may leave the station and we might not be on it if we're not careful. Now, wrapping up that interview, the AM show's Duncan Garner made his own views plain. I appreciate your time on the programme. I'd love to carry this on and for hours yeah, and hours because there's so many questions that I have. But media campaigns to fund medicines like this also raise questions yet to be answered. And as with similar media campaigns for high-cost therapies, often for forms of cancer, there's a familiar pattern. Sad stories of patients and frustrated clinicians and the prompting of advocacy groups. And then pressure put on Pharmac and politicians to come up with the cash to ease the suffering and save lives. But really, is there any recognition that high-cost treatments of new drugs would come at the cost of others who will miss out, or that more lives could be saved for the same money spent on cheaper remedies for other illnesses? And the companies charging a fortune for the so-called miracle treatments are really investigated by the media outlets that urge public institutions to spend public money on their products. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back at the same time next weekend for more Media Watch here on RNZ National.